Okay, I mentioned we are in uh, Exodus 21 tonight, um, and if you remember, Exodus 20 uh, contains the Ten Commandments. So right before this, we spent several weeks on the uh, Ten Commandments, and, and the Ten Commandments began this way. Um, Twenty in chapter 20, verse 1 started this way, and God spoke all these words. And what that meant in that case was God spoke these words out loud to the people, to all the people of the congregation of Israel. And after that, after the Ten Commandments, uh, towards the end of chapter 20, we reached a different place uh, where it says in verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say, to the people of Israel. So at, at the people's request and for God's own purposes, God no longer speaks to the per- people directly. Uh, he speaks through Moses tonight, or from that point, and he will be tonight as well. So he began at the end of chapter 20 to give instructions after the Ten Commandments, based on the Ten Commandments, but after the Ten Commandments. In in chapter 20 uh, ended with some some explanations, some some commandments about how the people were to worship. So at the beginning of chapter 1, or 21, excuse me, those those kind of instructions are going to continue. Uh, And they will go on through the end of chapter 23, but they take a little bit of a different form. So this is what is is thought to be called the Book of the Covenant. Uh, it's it's referenced in Scripture a few times. Uh, first time in in chapter 24. So these verses up to chapter 24 are part of that. And chapter one, 21 starts a, starts a new phase in that, and you can tell that because it says this. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. So if you have anything but the ESV, you probably have a different word than I have in yellow here. Now these are the rules. Uh, if you have New American Standard, you have these are the ordinances. If you have the New International Version, you have, now these are the laws. If you have the King James Version, you have, now these are the judgments. Well, the most natural translation of that word, of the word here, would be judgments. These are the judgments. They are case law, you could say about the Ten Commandments. And it's, it's really good to get that perspective because as you read through these chapters, you go, well, that seems... Why, why are we talking about that? Why are we talking about this case? Now, John Salehammer points out that in these three chapters, there are 42 different cases. So in chapters 21, 22, and 23, there are 42 different cases um, that that God deals with, not dealing with every scenario, obviously in in forty two cases, but 
he is telling us something about his, the commandments, including that they're based on the Ten Commandments. So, so it, they're not unlike what we, we might ask. Well, does the, what does the Bible say about abortion, for example? Uh, we don't have the advantage that we know that our answer is going to be divinely inspired. But, but these answers are divinely inspired. And so why are these cases, why are these the cases that are here? Well, we don't know for sure why that would be, but it, it might be something like this that is described in uh, Exodus chapter 18, a few chapters ago. Remember this, because when Moses' father-in-law comes to him, and Moses has been meeting with the people, standing while they sit, um, or um, sitting while they stand, I should say. And, and here's what his father-in-law um, said. Well, he said, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me and inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And so, so Moses' father-in-law, if you remember, says, well, that's not good. Uh, and it's not good because Moses was doing something that he really shouldn't have been doing. He was doing too much, basically. And he, in, in his father-in-law, if you remember, says this, you're going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear the people out, too, doing that. So his solution was to appoint men of character uh, who had some skill and this, and let them judge the people at all time. And every great matter they shall bring to you, but the small matter they shall decide for themselves. So a hard case might be something like God said you shall not slay a person. You shall not murder, as we have it translated. You shall not slay. Well, what if I kill someone accidentally? That might be a question that Moses would bring. So these are cases like that. They're cases like um, they would, would be questions that come up, possibly. Um, and so if you're reading through them, they might seem random, uh, because it jumps from one case to the next fairly quickly, and at times it looks like there is no connection between these cases, 15 of them in this chapter, in chapter 21, 15 cases. Um, Now, Victor Hamilton um, noticed that there are some common themes between them. They, They might seem somewhat random, but they're actually kind of lumped together, um, for example, verses 12 through 17 contain four cases that all have this said in those four cases. He shall surely be put to death. So he entitles this four capital offenses. That's what, what Hamilton entitles those four verses. Well, well, we'll group the Exodus 21 judgments into four groups. 
Um, Hamilton has a lot more than four. I don't know. I can't remember exactly how many he has, but he has he has more than four, and we'll 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 put them like this. First one, Hebrew slave cases, especially how do you treat a Hebrew slave? Secondly, death penalty cases. Those are the ones that that Hamilton entitled for capital offenses. Third, serious bodily injury cases. And fourth, injury in livestock cases. So sometimes livestock injure people and sometimes livestock are injured by people and sometimes livestock injure each other. And so those are all lumped together at the end. So Hebrew slave cases, we'll begin there. So this isn't a complete list of everything that that the Old Testament has to say about slavery. Um, It's general principles, the big picture really, of how they, um, the Hebrews are to treat each other uh, as slaves. And there are two cases here at the beginning of the chapter um, verses 2 through 11, uh, dealing with one dealing with male slaves and one dealing with female slaves. And so we'll take a look at those. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Now these are the judgments, these are the case laws that you shall set before them, and again, this runs all the way through chapter 23, all the way to the end of chapter 23. When you buy a Hebrew slave, uh, if you have New American Standard or NIV or the King James, it says "if you buy." Um, you'd most naturally read that as when you buy a Hebrew slave, but they're, they're, the, these translations are making the point that that you know you're, you're ne- we don't want you to mistake this for a command that you are to, commanded to own a slave, uh, and so they they phrase it if you buy, but it, but it is true that that there is no case where where the Hebrew people are commanded to take slaves. They're allowed to take slaves. They're not commanded to take slaves. So this is really not a very comfortable topic for us. Um, And rightly so. Uh, Because our country's history, actually all world history, um, has had slavery in it up until the last, you know, 200 years or so, um, a little bit more than that, when in, for instance, in the West, in England, Will, uh, William uh, Wilberforce, uh, in about 1807, led, led the case to eliminate slavery, the slave trade in England. Um, but slavery still remains common today. Um, and what's talked about here with Hebrew slaves isn't anything like the slavery in our past, in, in the United States history. And it's not anything like the slavery that they just had in Egypt. Uh, it's much different from that. But still, it is uncomfortable for us to talk about it or really even to 
to think about it. But, but that's why we do these Sunday nights, right? So we have, we're forced to deal with all of Scripture and not pick and choose the parts that we like to talk about. So, um, many deal with this topic of slavery um, in, in a few different ways, a couple of different ways, I would say. The, ma- the main ways that peel, people deal with this are that, um, one, that God doesn't command people to take slaves, and, and that's true. Um, and it's also true, though, that, that the Bible never says you shall not take slaves. Um, so, Scripture gives instructions for how we are to treat people who are slaves, as is in the Hebrew people, among God's people. And most of the instructions are for, for those who hold the slaves, how they are to deal with them. So, the idea then of, of this, this type of thought is that that God recognizes that there's slavery in the world. There's slavery in a fallen world. And it's, this is kind of like divorce. That is, it's allowed because of the hardness of our hearts. Um, and, and in a fallen world, people are always going to be poor. Uh, people are always going to need to be bailed out. And this is one way to do that people are going to get in trouble they're going to they're going to they're going to be broke and they really have no no way to get out of debt and this is the way that that this is one way that that is taken care of okay so that's the that's one way that that people deal with that another is to just point out some things that are very very much true about it uh, still it's a hard topic but but being a he, hebrew slave this is this is the line of thinking, was like an apprenticeship. Um, it's clear that the, the, the main way that people would enter into slavery, uh, a Hebrew person, would be that if he was poor, unable to pay debts, had no way to pay debt, and so entered into slavery to free himself from debt um, and learn a trade while doing it. So you might equate it to a ranch hand and that goes and lives on a ranch. So that's, that's one explanation. I, I kind of think it would be more like when you sign up for the military. You sign up, but you're going to give some things up. You're going to give up your freedom. You're going to have to follow orders. You're going to be subjected to harsh treatment. Um, but... Along these same lines, though, uh, of that this is like an apprenticeship, the word for slave um, can also be translated servant. And so we shouldn't really, the thought is, we shouldn't really translate it slave. Because it's not like that we traditionally think of Slave. It's a it's a different thing. In fact, the New American or the NIV and the King James version both translate it servant. So um, that is certainly a possible translations. And Hebrew slaves were were traded much differently than than we normally think about as slaves. It's just a completely different thing. So slaves or Servants are mentioned in the Ten Commandments twice. Uh, 
So in the fourth commandment, you'll remember it says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant. Notice they translate it servant here. Or your female servant. Same word that's going to be translated female slave later. Same, the two words are different between male servant and female servant, but they're the same ones that are used in chapter 21. Or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. In other words, these are not going to be treated like typical slaves. They're servants. You're supposed to give them rest. You're supposed to treat them differently than you do, than you're used to seeing, than you got treated in Egypt. Uh, it's a different thing. So the Tenth Commandment also uh, deals with servants. That is, that you're not supposed to covet your neighbor's servant, along with the other things that you're not supposed to covet, like his house or his wife. So Hebrew slaves were to be treated differently from other slaves. Now when you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. So this, this rule, this, this judgment, um, is specifically about male slaves. The word for male servants. The word here for servant is the word for male servant or male slave. He shall, not, he shall serve for six years, and then on the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. So those are the general principles here. This is referring to a male servant. Um, there is a limited time for him to serve, and then he is to go out free without charge. He doesn't, you don't get to charge him anything for his freedom. He goes out free. But it also is, includes, as we, we will see as we go through this case, that he's not anything allowed to take anything with him either. So he goes out like he came in. So whatever he had when he became your slave is his. Whatever he didn't have is not his. It's yours. So Deuteronomy, um, later Moses writes, writes Deuteronomy on the instructions that he's given, that he's giving um, as, as Israel's pastor for people who might own servants or might own slaves, depending on which way you want to, want to say it. So again, same word. But he's referring to this same case. And Moses writes this in Deuteronomy 15. When you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So in other words, he tells the slave that you aren't entitled to anything when you leave. You're entitled to go free. But he tells the masters, hey, Take care of these people. 
that have served you so faithfully. They've been worth more to you than a hired hand. He served you faithfully. And so we are to, you are to reward him at the end of the time. You, you're not required by what came earlier to let him have anything. But give him things. Take care of them. Treat, treat people like you want to be treated. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Take care of this person. So, you know, so we might think, well, this doesn't really have anything to do with us because we don't have slaves. But the principle of these case laws, the principles behind them don't wear out. They are ongoing. And so as, as believers in Jesus Christ, with, if we are in positions of authority, we are to treat people differently because we're believers, because we are God's people. We don't treat people like other people treat people. Uh, here's here's the, the example that pops into my head, is that in, in business, and if I've known a lot of business people, uh, in my life, and one in particular comes to mind that, that basically the goal is I'm going to pay people as little as I can get away with. That's not what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to, if we're in business, we're supposed to, to treat people fairly, different than non-Christians would treat people. And even if we are successful, we should maybe err on the side of, I'm going to give them too much. Um, I'm going to share the wealth. That's the principle right here. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give him. So these principles still apply for, for us today. We should never be known as the person who says, you know what, I, I can get this I can get this job. I've got somebody here working for 15 bucks an hour. I think I can do it for 14, so if I hire somebody else. Um, just for that, that economic principle. No, it's, we are to treat people differently than non-Christians treat them. We are to recognize that it is the Lord that blesses us, not our hard work, necessarily. A lot of people work hard and, and never um, have economic independence, you would say. Um, but the Lord has blessed us, and you shall give it to others. So, along those same lines, though, the reason that, that, that some people say that this, these should be called servants and not slaves uh, is because a slave could escape. And Israel had kind of a unique commandment for uh, what happens if a slave comes to you? So normally, like if, if, if your neighbor, if, if his livestock runs away and you find it, you're supposed to hold it and get it back to your neighbor. And if you can't find, don't know whose it is, you're supposed to hold on to it until you can return it to your neighbor. Here's what it says about slaves. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master. To you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. 
Now, Daniel Block says this applies to non-Hebrew slaves. Others say that, no, it applies to all slaves. In other words, if they escape, they're free. They're not, you're not supposed to let, send them back. So if they're, if they're free to go, how are they a slave? Uh, that is Hamilton's argument that if you can go free, you're not a slave. If you can go free and people aren't supposed to make you go back, then you are a servant but not a slave. So let's move on to verse 3. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. That's the principle. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and he bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to the master. And he shall go out alone. So the principle is, if you, you, come, you leave with what you came in with, um, and, and the master gave you the other things, and so they belong to him. But the slave still, or the servant still, goes free. But if the slave plainly says, or the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. So that's, I mean, so if this ever got exercised, I would say that the master was treating the slave very kindly, right? Um, and the Deuteronomy passage doesn't mention the wife and the children. Just if you, I love my master. Uh, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave or servant for ever. So that's the first case. The second case is this. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, likely the same situation, poor, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, in other words, he is she has been sold to a man as a wife or possibly even a concubine, um, then he shall let her be redeemed. And so if, if for some reason um, he wants to divorce her, uh, he, he's paid for her, he can't sell her, he has to allow her to be redeemed by her family, to be bought back by her family. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has broken faith with her. So, again, an uncomfortable way to think about things for us, isn't it? Um, we can't imagine the idea of selling a child into, um, into service, into slavery, into marriage, selling um, someone into that. But, again, the way that people deal with this is God allows this. It's like divorce because of the hardness of our hearts. But, as Jesus said, but it wasn't like this from the beginning. These things are in a fallen world. Moses allowed them. I think this would fit into that category. And then, the slave owner here, or the, the master, um, this would apply to him, what Jesus says. But if anybody divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. Right? So, 
Another possibility is that if he bought her, if he designates her for his son, he shall not deal he shall deal with her as a daughter. In other words, the servant becomes the wife of the son with all the marital rights of of a wife and is no longer a servant. If he takes another wife, that would be if the son takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So if he doesn't take care of her, she gets to go free. So she's not, she's no, she's not a servant if somebody designates um, her for her son. Nobody has to buy her back for her to leave, like, like in the other case. She just gets to go free. So those are the Hebrew slave cases, and there are more. But these are the ones that, are, that have dealt with, like right up front. Isn't that interesting? Um, that they are dealt with right up front. So um, the next one is death penalty cases. The Ten Commandments don't include punishments or sentences for violating the Ten Commandments, the laws. Um, And so these four cases, as I mentioned before, all have the same words. He shall surely put to death is the way you would, I think that's probably the best translation for it. I think that's like the New American Standard has it. But they all have exactly the same words in Hebrew. Um, so there are only four cases like that in, in this chapter, and they're all lumped together. There's one more in, in the Book of the Covenant in, in, in chapter 22. But these are all lumped together. And here is the general principle in verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. So this expands on the Ten Commandments. Uh, It doesn't expand on what the penalty is supposed to be for killing a person. Uh, That was given before at the time of Noah. But whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. That's the general principle. But there are other cases here. So... So Hamilton mentions that that this phrase, he shall surely be put to death, um, only means one thing. And that is that that it is to be capital punishment um, from man to man. In other words, it's not, I'm telling you that I'm not, I'm not telling him that, telling you that I'm going to kill him later, that, that you are to put him to death. You as people are to put this person to death. So, uh, it is specifically for some certain crimes committed or some certain sins committed. So, so the, a question that comes up re- relatively often is, is has the um, capital punishment, has the death sentence been superseded by the New Testament and we, would, we might hear things like, well, Jesus never approves of the death sentence. Well, that's a misreading of, of Scripture. But, but how about this argument? How can you be pro-life 
and be for the death sentence. Doesn't, isn't that inconsistent to be pro-life, can be for, against abortion because it kills a human being, but then be for the death penalty? Um, that, that argument has been around a long time. Um, and Albert Moeller has been recently, has recently talked about this several times. So if you listen to the briefing, um, uh, it's because there have been death, death, potential death sentence cases, sentence cases that have come up. Um, I'm thinking of the one in, especially one where there was a premeditated murder of school children uh, in Florida at a school. Somebody planned it out carefully to try to kill the most people he could, the most kids he could. Planned it all out, and that person did not get the death penalty. And so there, it's not surprising that, that Moeller has been dealing with this lately because he, he says the briefing is a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview. So we're, we're going to take the news and we're going to talk about what it means from a Christian worldview. So... The basis for the death sentence for murder comes much earlier. It comes in back to the time of Noah, right after the flood. And, and here it is. And for your life bread, blood, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. So if an animal kills you, I will require it. And from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning of life for the life of a man. And here's what he means. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And here's the reason. For God made man in his image. We are valuable because we are made in God's image. And so when someone kills someone made in God's image, it is an assault on God himself. And so if someone kills a man, by man his blood shall be shed. That's what this is referring to. He shall surely be put to death. So the death sentence has not been superseded. Uh, in fact, um, I'm not going to be able to say it exactly like Moeller did, but basically, if you care about human life, the, the death sentence is simply required in some cases, like that school shooting. It's the right thing to do. Because if you value human life, um, you can't allow. We can't have a society that allows killing people without 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 the punishment that God has prescribed. So, on to um, the rest of this this case. Whoever strikes a man, so that he die, so that he dies, shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him. But God let him fall into his hand. In other words, it was not premeditated. And as we're going to find out later, he didn't hate him in the past. Um, 
and or it might have been what we would consider accidental. Then I will appoint a place for you to which he may flee. Those are the cities of refuge that are coming later in Numbers that he's going to address in the, in the book of Numbers. But if a man willingly attacks another man to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. In other words, it doesn't matter where he flees. You can appeal to, you can go, and it happens in Scripture where somebody's hanging onto the altar and they get executed. Right? If you shed blood, um, there is no safe place to hide. Next case. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Well, that seems pretty harsh. Um, it, it doesn't say that the parent died or was even injured. Just whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Again, this is for the uh, community of Israel. We don't know how frequently that this was ever practiced. But it is an attack on the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that a little bit more when I get to verse 17. So whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone, um, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So kidnapping was a capital offense as well because it attacks the family. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So that, again, that's, that seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? That, that if, you say, if you curse your father or mother, you are put to death. So the word for curses here, I think all the major English translations, all the ones considered more, more um, literal, translate this curses. Um, it can also be translated dishonors. Right? It can also be translated insults. Um, and why? Why is this a big deal? Well, because it is, it is um, fighting against. It is, it is coming after the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. So the, the word for the word for honor. Um, Heard this the other day, which is it is absolutely true. The word for honor is to like to consi- to make heavy, to make it a big deal, a heavy thing. And the word for curse, or the word for dishonor, or the word that's translated insult, uh, is based on the word for to make light. So don't make light of your parents, right? Treat them with with weight. So, and Jesus actually addressed this, this very verse. Um, he said, when the, when the Pharisees came to him and said, so why is it that your disciples disregard or break the tradition of the elders? And Jesus responded this way. And why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. For God commanded, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles, or that word in Greek, whoever speaks evil of, father or mother, 
must surely die. But I say, if you, if anyone tells his father or mother that you, what you would have gained from me is given to God. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm giving it in the offering, right? So I was, I have money, but I'm, I've already decided to give it to God, and so I'm not going to help you. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. That expands this into how we are to treat our parents. And why is that? Well, it's because the family is the building block of society. And God has established that authority in parents. And when we rebel against the authority of parents, we are rebelling against God because he has put into place every authority that there is. And society cannot survive without the family. And our society is attacking the family, right? In so many different ways that we can just, we can just name them off one after another. Some of the, you know, we can think of the big ones that are in the news all the time attacking the family. But, but how about just this one? When, when, um, I was with Great Life, you know, we had, a, we had a family membership, right? Had to be a parent, a legitimate parent, and um, anybody else in the household. Well, somebody came and said, well, we're, we're, we're not married. I have kids, she has kids. We live in the same place we always had. We're a family. By whose definition are we not a family? Right? Our, our society is under attack by that kind of thinking. Right? By that kind of thinking that, that the family is something different. So we just came back from, from Mexico with the, and, and the, the theme was the Christ centered family. And, and, um, as, as basis for the talk on, what is God's design and purpose for the family? Um, I used Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, which is the Shema. You've heard, you've heard us say Shema before. But just think about what this says about a family. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's, that's spoken primarily to, to Israelite men, right? But adults. And these words which I'm commanding you today will be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. In other words, somebody that loves God completely. All heart, soul, mind, strength. Teaching God's commandments to his children. Diligently repeating them over and over again is another way you could say that. And you will talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk in your way, when you lie down, and when you get up. You will bind them like a sign on your wrists. They will be like headbands between your eyes. You will write them on the doors of your house 
on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. That's God's plan for a family. God's design for a family, what a family should look like. A union of a man and a woman who love the Lord their God, who disciple their children to love the Lord their God so that they can not only disciple their children, but also just spread his love through all of creation, through all, all the world. That's what God wants us to do. And attacks on the family come after that. Cases for serious bodily injury. The general principle is found here. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. So that's kind of from the middle of middle of the, uh, this section. And, it, and it, gives a case, it gives cases like this, where somebody stri- a man strikes another man, and he doesn't die right away. Um, he goes home, he gets up, he, um, he maybe dies later, but if, he doesn't, if there's no serious injury, right, uh, he just has to pay for his time. So you don't have to injure him for that. If you have a man has, strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. doesn't say how. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for his slave is his money or his property. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman... So that her children come out and there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for Stripe. Now, that is, um, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that this is one, one possible way to, to show that an infant is a person, right? But it's among many ways. Uh, by itself, it would not probably hold up to make your, your, your whole case based on this. But in conjunction with everything else, like Psalm 139, um, People in the womb are people. They're persons. Babies in the womb are persons that God knows. So, the last case then. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So it isn't an eye for an eye in this case. It's actually much better for the slave, right? If the slave loses an eye or loses a tooth, what good is it if you strike the master and lose his eye and lose his tooth? He, instead, the slave gets a much better thing. The slave gets to go free. So we are going to have to wrap it up there, but... but um, Tuesday, Tuesday uh, is election day.
right? And things like the family are on the ballot on Tuesday. Things like abortion are on the ballot on Tuesday. Not, not directly, right, but through people we elect. And there's been a lot of focus on, the, on abortion, and, that, and, and a lot of people have made the point that, that you know, the, the battle over abortion is just really beginning. Now now's when the fight starts. Well, in the meantime, while we're focused so much on that, we're losing the battle for families in our society. We're losing the battle for God's design. And so, there are, you know, a couple of things that we can do. There are three things we can do. One is vote. But that's, that's probably the least. The second one is, hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And teach your kids to do the same thing, repeating it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I just got, this is just, I got asked for advice for a, for a young person not long ago. Saying, you know what, you have any advice for me? You know, I'm... And I said, well, let me tell you what the biggest thing, the, what has been the biggest impact in my life in the last 30 years. I can narrow it down to one thing. I have been in the same church for all that time. A church where we know that God's word is valued and preached and taught. So if we want to know what we can do for our families, be here. It is the most important thing that I've done in the last 30 years. The thing that's made the biggest impact on my life is being here. In that setting. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and the things like these case laws that you bring before us and the, and the principles that last for ever, uh, even though we don't have the particular things going on in here that we do, that they did then. We know that, that you have your universal truths for us in your word, and that's the place we find them. And Lord, we thank you that we can come together uh, in our country and meet like this and discuss these things and, and, and open your word, openly worship you. Uh, we, we give you thanks for that. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.